Turn with me, if you would, please, to the second chapter of Colossians. We'll be looking into the first five verses. The Apostle Paul, of course, was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was an apostle to the Gentiles, and yet he was not the one who brought the gospel to Colossae and Laodicea and the Lycus Valley. There was another. We believe that uh, the one who brought the gospel to the Colossians was one Epaphras. He, we also believe, was the pastor who is mentioned in chapter 1. Of course, the Apostle Paul did a great evangelistic work wherever he went. And then he also did a pastoral work. And what we find really in these verses in the second chapter of Colossians is the pastoral heart of Paul the Apostle. As he writes, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Well, it's for sure that the Colossians were established in the gospel. The apostle in the first chapter makes it clearly known that they were so, that they'd heard the gospel, they'd believed the gospel, they'd come to trust Christ and him only for their salvation. And yet here we find the apostle with the ministry of establishment, desiring that they become established in the truth of the gospel in the word of God and uh, that because there were great dangers there are always dangers that we face spiritually there are dangers that we face all along our life as we walk with Christ and we know that the unstable and the unwary and uh, those who are unestablished are easy prey for the subtle devices of Satan and he has many of those devices so we know that firm conviction and fortification in the truth of Christ alone presents the barrier that will prevent false teaching from entering into the heart. Of course, there are more dangers than false teaching, but that was the great danger that was faced at Colossae. That's a danger that has often risen in the course of the history of Christianity and the antidote to such is being firmly established, firmly convicted, and firmly understanding, laying hold of the gospel and retaining it. So we know that if the adversary can grab one attention, if he can move them to believe a lie by appealing even to intellectual pride, to knowledge, that he will use that method in, and he'll do so in the most subtle of ways. Uh, we recognize that was a problem at Colossae and at other places. There were those who were claiming a superior knowledge that only a few initiated ones would have. And in that claim, of course, there was an appeal to pride. And if lies that masquerade as true are spoken enough, then those who are not established, those who do not have a firm conviction of the truth and are unsuspecting, they're in grave danger of being deceived. But we do realize that a lie is a lie, no matter how it's presented, no matter how often it's spoken, it's still a lie. No matter how craftily it may be put forth, it's still a lie. No matter how knowledgeable the one may sound who proclaims that lie. It's still a lie. 
And of course we know that has happened in our own world. Uh, witness, for instance, how widespread the religion of evolution. And I distinctly call it a religion because that's what it is. There is no scientific method that establishes it in any way whatsoever in truth. It has to be believed. And so without a valid single proof, it's accepted because it's spoken over and over again as if it were simply taken by granted to be truly scientific. And yet it's religion. One has to believe that. There is no proof. We know that if over millions of years that man came into being, we recognize there would be millions of transitional forms throughout history. No such thing. None ever found, nor shall ever be found. Yet, because it's de elaborately devised and said enough, men blindly accept it as true. The enemy of God and men, the adversary, the devil himself, a very real spiritual being, is an incredibly intelligent being. You read that in the Old Testament. God himself says he's of high intelligence. And he knows how to use words to appeal to human pride and human intellect. He did that to our first parents in the garden. He knew how to approach Eve. He knew how to endeavor to produce doubt in her mind of the truth of the word of God and of the goodness of the God who gave his truth. So he was able to move our first parents to trust their natural reason which God gave unto them and trust in their own reasoning ability rather than in God himself. We read that Eve looked at the tree as seeing that which she thought would make her wise. And so the adversary is very real, very subtle. He did this to our first parents. And so <clears throat> there were false teachers that had come to the Lycus Valley where Colossae was located and where Laodicea and probably other churches had been established. And uh, <clears throat> like the dangers from the false teachers, the enemy sent many to that area using what Paul calls in verse 4 enticing words. There were words meant to persuade one of a certain position. And of course this has been the prime method to try and distort and deny and overturn the saving truth of God as he has revealed it in his gospel, in his word. So there has to be a way to prevent false doctrine from entering the heart and becoming entrenched in a church. We've only to look at church history to realize too many times this has been the case. And the way is to become so firmly established in the truth that God makes known in his word and to rely upon that truth as sole authority. It is our sole authority for faith and practice. Our sole authority to which we are to bow in submission to God and recognition of such. So we witness in this Colossian epistle, the pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul. He was aware of the dangers that still faced those who had believed in Christ, even those who had accepted his death as the death of their sins and who relied only upon him, those who had a hope in heaven. And uh, he labors in all diligence, of course, yet to establish them in the only truth that shall keep them from being led astray. This is clearly taught in Scripture, that the saints must be established in the truth. 
God, of course, raises up ministries for this purpose, churches, so that his people can be established in the truth. And it's a sad thing when those churches apostatize, move away from what God himself has taught and begin leaning to that which is absolutely false. So the apostle in chapter 1, verse 28, says, whereunto, or verse 28, pardon me, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. And then in verse 1 he says, For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. You see, in the church, the preaching of the Word of God is to be central. The expounding and constant teaching of the truth that God has made known therein is primary. It is irreplaceable in the true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. In many, in many places in our day, it's fallen into disrepute because people aren't willing to give what's required to receive the ministry, the expounding of the Word of God. And so there's no wonder that the divine inspiration of Scripture, that God gave His Word by divine inspiration, that all Scripture is indeed given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, there's no marvel that that great truth that stabilizing truth has come under great attack and continues to be under attack. Then we know there are those things in our day like entertainment that has attained in many churches, entertainments that will appeal to the flesh, appeal to the nature of man as he likes to be entertained he likes to feel good, and the feel-good entertainments that arise now in the churches replace the true worship of God, the worship of God in spirit and in truth. Or there's a human needs type situation where psychology is that which reigns in churches. Those who feel they have certain needs, and this is where they get their needs met, and that's the purpose of the church. Well, there is a supreme need that's met in the church. And when that is there, other things tend to also come into place. So there's this human needs-based ministry that takes precedence over the one thing that is truly needed. And that is the expounding of the truth of God as is revealed in His Word. Paul speaks of his conflict in verse 1. For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my, my face in the flesh. You remember the Apostle Paul in the sufferings that he undertook and the sufferings that he received willingly in the gospel in order to exalt the Lord and proclaim his truth and and give the truth to those whom God would call and love them and endeavor to establish them in the truth, one of those things that he sets forth that he was really heavy upon him was the care of all the churches. He says that to the Corinthians. And here we see his conflict in regard to these Colossians. And so he labors in prayer for them. And... He magnifies to them in this the supreme importance of holding firmly to the truth as God has made it known in his word, in his gospel. We know one thing firmly from this epistle, and that is that the enemy of souls, that old serpent, the devil himself, was attempting to divide the church. He was attempting to do that 
by the cunning teaching of that which was false. So again in verse 1, I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. And he says in verse 4, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Obviously, there was an appeal to human pride. There was an appeal to human knowledge and intellect. There were some, evidently, who were being taught that there was a secret. There was a mystery that only they could know. And such always appeals to human pride. And that salvation was in what they knew, not in who they knew. That salvation was in knowledge. And that that knowledge was an end in itself. And that's a very subtle thing to teach. And this led many, of course, who have studied very carefully the history and uh, biblically, to think that the Gnostic teaching in its early form had made its way to Colossae. There was in the Gnostic teaching a Greek dualism. And this Greek dualism taught that what was physical, what was matter, was evil. And what was spirit was good. Matter, bad. Spirit, good. Of course, this led to something very serious. It led to a denial of the very incarnation of the Son of God, that the Lord Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that God was manifest in the flesh. This became a denied thing by those who were teaching this so-called secret knowledge. And such... An error, of course, would be refuted by the Apostle Paul, as in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And then he writes in the second chapter, verses 18 and 19, let no man beguile you. That's a deceptive thing. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, being taught that they had learned and were being taught secret mysteries and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Of course, Christ is the head, and the only head of his church. So whatever the error, whatever it really was, and we believe that the Gnostic error, which would later be developed further, was in its early form. And it was in such a nature as to denial or deny the actual incarnation of Christ and the sole sufficiency of his death on the cross for sinners and the necessity of faith in him alone for salvation. John the Apostle wrote those five books that he was given to write late in the first century and this had developed further. And so he, he writes in 1 John 4, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, where have you heard that it should come? And he says, that greater is he that is in you, that he that, than he that is in the world. We have to be careful and understand that we can be led astray from the truth. We can lend our ears to things that are false. And the only way that is truly combated and overcome 
is by the faith of the Son of God as he is revealed in Scripture. It is ever the work of the adversary to deny or to distort the gospel of God's grace in Christ by in some way denying the truth of his person, his work, his doctrine, or by denying that salvation is gained by Christ alone, sovereignly, by faith alone, by grace through faith, and never by human works. There's a vast difference, of course, between teaching that saving faith in Jesus Christ produces works, and then on the other hand that works must be added to faith for salvation. When works are added to faith for salvation, that's a false gospel. That's a distortion of the truth. When works are denied as being produced by the grace of God in one who has truly come by that grace to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that's also an error that can lead to licentiousness in life. So the basic foundational truth is never to be altered in any way as Paul taught in the companion epistle to the Colossians and that's the Ephesian epistle in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10 for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works lest any man should boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So, Paul has a conflict. He has a battle. This battle is against spiritual powers, real spiritual powers. Any one, any man whom God calls to the gospel ministry understands the reality of those powers and the great conflict that can come, and the conflict that comes in the heart, and the prayer striving for those whom he has given uh, to minister the truth unto. So Paul's conflict, the battle against the spiritual powers attempting to overthrow the gospel, and those who are called the saints and faithful brethren in Christ at Colossae, he engaged in prayer, and uh, that was... Uh, giving also this epistle as God had given him to write to them and it was for their encouragement and strengthening in the truth that they had received and had believed. So in the second chapter, verses 2 and 3, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Well, he speaks here of the comforting of their hearts being knitted together. That Greek word that is translated comforted means much more than we use it now in our present English form. We tend now to think of it and limit it to the sense of consoling. The Greek verb means to hearten, to encourage. And the Latin original means to make strong, which was long retained, of course, as the English meaning. The apostle's purpose is not here then to bring them to faith in Christ. It's to establish them. It's to strengthen them. It's to see them confirmed in the conviction and solid in their understanding of the truth that's made known by God in His Word. This is the pastoral function. This is the function of the pastor to feed the sheep of God, to strengthen in the truth of God, to give forth the truth as God has made it known. And so uh, that's what Paul is doing here at this particular time with the, uh, with the uh, uh, Colossians. There are forces that will come against you. There are many persuasive voices that will twist, twist the truth 
There are those who will look to other things and put them even above the things of God and think they're going to be more effective to help people than the truth, than the Word, than what God has given therein. Many voices will twist the truth in very subtle ways. There are enticements from the world around you. There are enticements that would lead you and want to make you come under such a feel-good situation that you would want to choose those things rather than the things that are really rich toward your soul and your eternal welfare. There are the pressing of sinful desires that are still within your human nature. They're not expunged from us when we come to Christ. We have the ability to overcome them. We're given the grace of God to overcome them. But they're still there to war against us in human nature. And to withstand these requires a strength that's greater than all those things that oppose your knowledge of and faithful adherence to Christ and the truth that is in Him. Your biggest enemies, by the way, are those within. And they can lead you to neglecting the very means, of course, that God gives for strengthening, granting you a knowledge that is true in His Word by either putting worldly interest above that which God has ordained or by simple laziness or becoming so busy as to crowd out that which is most important or ease and pleasures. Of course, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ gave the parable of the sower. He taught in the parable of the sower there were certain types of ground that the seed would, would come to rest upon and, and go in for a certain distance and only one which went in completely uh, to producing fruit in truth. And he speaks of that which was among thorns and says the cares and the riches of this world will choke the word. And it becomes unfruitful. And so if anything takes precedence over what God has ordained, that's a great danger. It's the same truth when the Lord says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Neglecting of the things of God, neglecting of the church. The church meets for worship and instruction to receive the truth, to learn of God, to increase in the knowledge of Him to increase in the knowledge of His Word and uh, neglect of the daily disciplines of being in prayer and in Bible reading and study and meditation personally, failing to take advantage of opportunities for witnessing the gospel to others. It weakens and poses a real spiritual danger. If it didn't, we wouldn't have that warning given us in Scripture. That's why, for instance, when Paul writes to the Hebrews who were under a great subtle attack and from themselves even because they'd been drawn out of Judaism which now no longer was in force and they had come to confess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet he says in Hebrews 2.1 we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard lest at any time we should let them slip. How many, you wonder, take that exhortation that is not simply how one begins, but they are to more earnestly give heed to the things of God, to the things they've heard. And he gives the warning on in a couple of verses in Hebrews 2, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? And so we have these things taught us. The Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 8 speaks to some Jews who believed on him. What shows the reality that they are truly his. He says, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And yet there's something else here that we have to take notice of. And that is that the strength 
of the unity of a gospel church is only as strong as the bond of genuine love for each other. Love then for each other fortifies full conviction of the truth as it is in Christ. You see, we learn in Scripture we have an effect on each other. What we do has an effect upon each other. What we say has an effect upon each other. The way we treat each other has an effect on each other and an effect upon the truth we profess to believe. And so we find that in Scripture. To be sure, this love the Apostle is speaking of is to be exercised toward each other and it's the major fruit of a genuine faith in Christ and an accepted and genuine understanding that by His cross alone and through faith in Him only, by the gift of God's wondrous grace in granting us faith in Christ to know Him, to trust Him only, that we become under the realization that we're cleansed from sin and reconciled to God. That's a blessed truth. What a glorious truth. What a glorious truth we come immediately to find out of the glory of cleansing from sin. I think of David in Psalm 51. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. We've seen snow recently. There's nothing that's much whiter than snow. I don't know of anything whiter than snow. And God cleanses His own from sin. And when we come under conviction, we come under the awful reality of the defiling nature of sin, not only that it has brought separation between God and us, the most horrendous thing about it, yet we are also defiled by it coming to realize that Jesus Christ sent, uh, the Son of God was sent into this world to bear the cross to take away our sins and to wash us to cleanse us as white as snow that all the spots of it are gone. Isn't that an amazing thing? That's wondrous when we come to realize that glorious truth. And then we come to realize there are others that are in this same family that God has brought us into. We come to love them. We come to want to be a help to them. We want to even put them above ourselves. It's too little shown among those professing to know Christ this day, but that's the biblical way. And this love... It's a fruit of genuine faith in Christ and the work of God's Spirit within us because through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ when God brings us into this wondrous reconciliation with Him through redemption that's in the Lord Jesus Christ, He brings us into reconciliation one with another as well. It's a wondrous thing to realize He has given us His Holy Spirit if we know the Christ of the cross in truth, then God has also put within us His Holy Spirit. And we know what the very first thing mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit is. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. We have a supreme command the Lord gave us concerning each other. That supreme command of the Lord Jesus Christ was given a few hours before He bore the cross. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So if we do not love with the same love, the same kind of love, if not in the same degree with which our Lord loves us, do we even begin to keep our Lord's commandments? And he says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. 
that we fulfill loving God with our heart, our soul, our might, and loving our neighbor as ourselves in Christ and toward the brethren. Then love, when truly in possession and practice toward each other, strengthens the whole body of believers and thus strengthens each individual believer. There is a strength in this unity of love. And there is no unity unless this love is operative in a church, of course. And where there is a true unity of believers in Christ, there is defense against deadly error. Error has a hard time taking its foothold where this love is truly among the saints. And if hearts are knit together, to use Paul's word here, knit together. Now, I don't know that I have the patience to knit like some ladies do, but... Uh, when someone knits something together, it's one piece, but it's all put together. And we are one body. We are to be one body in Christ. Knit together in the love of Christ for each other. If that's a reality among us, then it will prevent disunity. Even when one member rubs another, as the colloquial is, the wrong way. God puts us together and sometimes we tend to rub each other the wrong way. Some will do that. And God is teaching us how to love in spite of each other. And He does. The Lord loves us. I'm glad the Lord doesn't love me because of me. But you know, you know why? He wouldn't love me. He loves me in spite of me. And that's the way we're to love one another. So you see it even in this Colossian epistles in the third chapter and verses 3 of 12 through 14, Paul writes, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you're called in one body. And be you thankful. Fortifying that what we here say is true. Is that your love exercised toward one another affects the strength of your knowledge of the truth. God is made known. This comes together in Scripture. This is something that became clear when studying Colossians and studying Ephesians, which, of course, again, is the companion epistle to the Colossians. If you look in Ephesians chapter 3, you'll see Paul has the same thing put together. Love of the brethren, establishment in the truth. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 14 through 19. Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 14 through 19. Wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that would he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. When you read in Scripture, you find out these things come together. Love of the brethren, knowledge of the truth, strengthening in the truth as God has given us in His Word. And further, 
The Corinthians, we know, as we read that epistle, were tempted to exalt knowledge even above love. They were being taught that knowledge was the supreme thing, that the knowledge was an end in itself. And so the Apostle Paul has to correct them when in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Knowledge puffeth up. One who thinks they know something one who thinks they know more than others. One who thinks they have a special knowledge above others. It tends to produce pride. Causes them to be exalted in themselves. He says, knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. I've beheld over the years, the long years in the ministry, that sometimes... Those who aren't very well educated as far as the world is concerned oftentimes are deep in wisdom and can know and receive the things of God sometimes far more than those who are the most highly educated. And I read in Scripture that's not an unusual thing. There was obviously those who were trying to teach the Colossians that there was a certain kind of knowledge which its teachers referred to as mystery, supposedly only known by a few initiated ones. And it was evidently being pressed upon the Colossians. The Apostle Paul is saying that a bond of love, a strong bond of love, is a defense against this soul-destroying error. They cannot have this love toward one another. You cannot walk in pride and love another. Did you know that? Pride is self-love. Pride is self-exaltation. So what does Paul do here? Paul sets forth the true mystery of God. The mystery of God that's known as God alone teaches it to his people through the preaching and the reception of the gospel of Christ. This mystery of God that is the full revelation of God in Christ. The full revelation of God in Christ by whom alone is God the Father made known. He, the full revelation of the mystery, God in Christ, is true wisdom, true knowledge, true riches, eternal riches, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Isn't that an incredibly sweeping statement? It's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ who makes known the Father, who reveals God in Himself, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Is that not why Paul could say, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord? and ourselves your servants for Jesus Christ, for Jesus' sake. Isn't that why the apostles could say, we preach Christ? They ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Christ crucified. No mere human knowledge would ever have known, much less devised such a salvation as is in the gospel of Christ crucified. No mere religion devised by man would ever have devised such a gospel as God gave. That God would enter his own creation by taking human nature, by becoming incarnate, and that by humility, obedience and complete self-sacrifice, God would defeat the adversary. 
not by brute force, but in perfect humility. In the greatest suffering any ever underwent, man would never have devised such a gospel. By this, defeating the powers of darkness, delivering from sin those who were in the clutches of Satan, as Paul says in Colossians 1.13, delivered us from the power of darkness, translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, those for whom Christ died and rose again, whom God sends forth His Holy Spirit to call to Him, to bring to Him. Christ is called, then, the wisdom of God and the power of God. That demolishes mere human reason. You see, that's what Paul was writing to the Corinthians when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. The preaching of a Christ crucified. He goes on to write in 1 Corinthians 1, the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto us which are saved, Christ, the wisdom of God and the power of God. And guess what? The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. The Greeks, hearing that gospel, scoffed at it. A God who got crucified? Yet this is the very method. This is the very means. This is the very way God saves His people. Through His glorious Son. Through His blessed, beautiful, infinite glorious son through the one he loved above all this is my beloved son through giving him to die in the place of such sinners as we such who had walked our own way defied God walked in the vileness of sin And He sends His Holy Son into this world to take our place, to die our death, to shed His blood, to wash us whiter than snow, to reconcile us to God. What a glorious salvation. Man would never have devised such. It crosses human reason. Then that salvation is completely by grace, totally by grace, sovereign grace. That it's apart from human works of any kind whatsoever. That it's applied by grace through faith only. That's completely contrary to all the systems man has devised in the world. This one comes from God, the mystery of God. That God does all the justifying of the believing sinner. That He makes the exchange, the glorious exchange. Our sins for Christ's righteousness. No man would ever have devised such a gospel as that. He had made Him, Christ, to be sin for us. Who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And the full conviction, the firm holding of God's true mystery, now made known in Christ, is strengthened and fortified by the love of believers for each other. That's a wondrous thing we're taught here. Who have come to give up all thought of merit and look to and trust Him alone, who died for them and rose again from the dead. And He, Christ, is all we need. In 
whom dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, as in Colossians 2.9. That's how very important it is to understand that God purposed churches. He ordained churches. Believers who've come to Christ in repentance from sin, trusted Him only, acknowledged in baptism that they're no longer their own, but His who died for them and rose again, that they're brought into union with the very death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, now to be His and His alone. That they're also joined to each other in a bond of love. And not only has God commanded us that we gather, but that we love each other and the purpose to further each other in the faith of Christ is to take place among us. It's to be exercised among us. You see, not only does God charge in His Word not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, that is preceded by we're to provoke one another unto love and to good works. The Colossians had withstood the attempt of Satan to destroy the gospel among them. They stood together in the faith of Christ. Paul acknowledged this in verse 5. For though I be absent in the flesh, Yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. But they and we must understand that we cannot let our guard down. We cannot become slack. We cannot allow other things to take precedence over him. Paul has set forth in this first chapter as preeminent in creation and in the church for he created all things and he is the head of the church they and we must understand that we cannot let our guard down but must by our love for each other and our establishment in the truth of Christ strive for ever greater strength to overcome the world and the wiles of the devil and to stand together for the truth of God the truth he has graciously imparted to us. For the church is to be the pillar and ground of the truth. Our Father, we pray, instill thy truth in our hearts and thy love supremely for thee and for one another. We shall thank thee in the blessed name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to give some prayer requests so those who've joined us, they'll have these requests and they can pray as well. And then uh, we'll conclude this. Did you stop the seating player? Yeah. Uh,